Hi, I'm Randy Nichols, and I'm in pursuit of the right angle. I was listening to a podcast a while back that had progressive preacher Nadia Bowles-Weber on it, um, and I was interested in it because both she and the host of the show had grown up in evangelical circles, but were now in progressive circles. I listened as she systematically threw out one major doctrine after another. She began where they always do with our out-of-touch views on sexuality in the church, laughed and mocked her way through all the, all the ways where Christian ideas or the family are just considered ridiculously passe. Um, then she surprised me by completely openly rejecting uh, the atonement and calling it, I think she called it cosmic child abuse, the idea of God the Father uh, sacrificing his son. Um, she downplayed the resurrection and shot down all the essentials, tenets of the faith, pretty much. I left that episode thinking to myself, wow, why does she even consider herself a Christian at all anymore? I looked her up, and she was raised in the church and rebelled at some point, but eventually found herself accepted as kind of a spiritual leader of Christian outcasts in certain circles. There were comedians and people like that, people in the entertainment industry that that recognized uh, some spiritual leadership in her or something. She knew how to sound spiritual with them, uh, but what she was saying was not the accepted Christian beliefs. About a month after that podcast episode, uh, Rachel Held Evans also progressive author, died at the age of 37. Um, she had been espousing the same views, and I hadn't realized they knew each other. Uh, but I was watching her funeral on YouTube uh, because I have loose connections with her. We went to the same college, and uh, I knew of her family there. And when it was in the, the uh, funeral, when it came time for the sermon... Uh, suddenly, Nadia Bowles-Weber walked up to the podium. She was the preacher. I was stunned, but then I was surprised even more when it became clear this was not going to be a normal eulogy. Uh, since she was very angry and sort of disgusted with the situation. And the more she talked, it was clear she and Rachel had been pretty good friends. And she seemed to have no assurance she would ever see her again. It reminded me of how uh, Bible teacher Steve Brown used to say, when he was a liberal, he found that he had nothing to say at gravesides. Um, Bowles-Weber had conveniently thrown out everything meaningful in Christianity for her and her followers for the sake of comfort, including the atonement and the resurrection. But now that she faced the death of a loved one, I mean, she had her bitterness, she had her jokes and insults about conservatives and evangelicals. Other than that, she had nothing. No assurance of redemption or salvation for her friend. She had no hope to offer anyone else, apparently because she had no hope of her own.
In 2011, uh, former evangelical teacher Rob Bell declared in his controversial book, Since Love Must Win in God's World, that must mean universalism is true, the idea that everyone is saved. And he had been pretty solid, even a pretty solid evangelical, uh, but after espousing heresy like that, he was considered apostate by most in the church, uh, unless he repented of that belief. For example, John Piper famously tweeted afterwards, Farewell, Rob Bell, as if to say, that compromise right there means you have left orthodoxy. Um, ever since then, though, there have been lots of other public apostasies of fairly popular Christian leaders or ministers of some kind in music or whether, uh, though some were just bloggers, um, and some were being honest about it. The honest apostate says, you know, I'm, I'm not sure I really ever believed. Or as Joshua Harris put it, I'm not a Christian anymore in any sense in which I understand the word. That's at least being honest about it. Many of these, though, like Bell, would not say they are apostatizing. But, but instead are saying what has been understood as Orthodox Christianity is based on a misunderstanding. So we're, we're wrong and, and he's right. Some of these have solid evangelical credentials, like a degree from a conservative Christian college, or like Bell, they've been pastoring a Bible-believing church for a while. They also come across very spiritual, and they know how to sound right with all the right words and convey emotion in the right places. Um, they just suddenly begin espousing heterodox views, which are conveniently sympathetic to the prevailing moral views of the world, the cult, current culture. And increasingly, I'm seeing them begin by questioning some of the things that we all question, by the way, about traditions or whatever, secondary issues, where we you know, we might see legalism. They begin questioning those, but then, like Rob Bell, they don't stop there. They begin expressing doubt and even opposition to major doctrines of the faith. Essential beliefs, like the exclusivity of Christ, um, the inerrancy of Scripture, the deity of Christ, even salvation by grace through faith. Eventually, they take this so far that even their followers start questioning them and saying, uh, wait, do you even consider yourself a Christian anymore? Um, are, are you still a Christian? Are you still saying you're Christian? At this point, they will begin backpedaling. I keep seeing this. They start saying things like, oh, no, I, I love the church. And they start to embrace certain of its rituals and, you know, trying to gain that credibility. Talk about the heartwarming feeling of being in church and stuff like that. And then once the shock wears off a little, they begin undermining the essentials again. I'm convinced these pe these are people who decide at some point they don't believe any of this anymore, but they believe they can make a difference. They see an opportunity to change the church into what they wish it was, which is basically like the rest of society. Um, and they have credibility, so they want to use that. Biggest example of this I've seen was Rachel Held Evans. She came from a conservative Christian family, got her degree at a college named after William Jennings Bryan in the, of the Scopes trial fame. Um, she was an excellent writer 
in an increasingly blogger-friendly world, uh, just thrived in that atmosphere. She made everything about God's love and sounded amiable and sweet. She seemed filled with sincere conviction lots of times whenever she spoke or wrote. Um, but the obvious pattern any serious believer could see in her life is that she was trying to deconstruct Orthodox Christian views and God's Word in order to make them subject to society's views on morality. Um, and like with the others, she pushed it as far as she could with her followers and then hit rewind to confirm. She still wanted to be considered to be in the church and then eventually start back with her agenda. These people relish their roles as leaders. They enjoy a large following of professing Christians that they and they don't want to lose that. So they continue this charade, their crusade, and they seem to be having some significant success. Um, so why is this happening now? One reason might be a large number of churches who are just so they seem to be happy to have shallow teaching. As long as they have emotional, entertaining music that itself only appears to say helpful, spiritual platitudes, or and it tries to work, as long as it tries to work the congregation into an emotional frenzy, they don't mind if uh, solid doctrine isn't taught in the music or in the pulpit. They will have man-centered, practical sermons, and make everyone feel better about themselves. A pre preachers whose doctrine is more about positive thinking than justification or sanctification, if, if it even considers that at all, self-esteem is more important in these messages than faith and repentance. And this plays directly into what these false teachers are doing. If you focus primarily on felt needs, then how in the world can traditional Christianity be true? I mean, it literally calls you to self-denial. So that, that just flows right into what false teachers want. The, se the second reason this may be happening now is the accepted morals of our day are becoming more and more directly anti-Christian. Uh, what do I mean by that? Well, for instance, some important ideas for Christian worldview that are becoming taboo are, uh, first of all, absolute truth. Just the idea that there is an objective truth apart from anyone's opinion. That's being overtaken by the concept of relativism, which says you can have your truth, I can have my truth, and we're both right, and nobody can say any of us is wrong. Of course, they are very selective in how they apply this, because they have no trouble saying that some things are wrong. Um, secondly, the idea of sex and gender is being undermined by egalitarianism. Uh, this is the idea that everything must be exactly equal or must at least appear so, or it's immoral. Um, that, and that flows into the recent push for gender fluidity, you know, the idea that biological sex and gender are separate. And most of the philosophy being forced on us these days are hostile to the traditional idea of the family. Think about that. You know, the church is, of course, the very important institution, obviously, in God's economy. But actually, the family 
is the more important institution. And of course, the family almost completely stands or falls on the strength of the marriage. So it doesn't take a genius researcher to see how the overall philosophy of today's culture is directly hostile toward marriage and family. From softcore pornography, some of which is presented in popular shows that are provided, you know, considered acceptable programming on Netflix or other streaming services. Um, it seems like every show nowadays has to at least have one major character in it with a lifestyle that would have been considered obvious sexual perversion years ago. Um, not long ago, actually. You can see how we live in a world where the most promoted leaders of the church are teaching based on how everyone feels and always erring on the side of the world's idea of love that is cheap grace without any real focus on God's law. In this context of a world that's aggressively pushing an agenda on us, that appears tolerant but is passionately anti-Christian in its principles, is you know is practically opposed to the biblical family, as I said. This, of course, results in a scenario where shallow, self-focused, you know, a, a spoiled believer is willing to listen to false teachers. Is willing to listen to people telling them that Christianity fits perfectly into our culture's desires. A Christian who isn't grounded in the Word has no real depth, no no spiritual depth, and he actually wants to cave into the world on these issues. It's both easy and satisfying to the flesh. Eventually, of course, you see no difference between the church and the world. Except it's not really the church anymore then, is it? Another reason maybe this may be happening is that these apostates are people who grow up in the church. They learn how to play the game, but they never are really challenged to defend or even say what they believe. Some of these false brothers and sisters, they're just realizing at some point, hey, I, I really don't, just don't believe this stuff. I love my family. I love all these people that are in this, and I grew up with them. But when I really think about it myself, I don't believe this. Maybe then it's occurring to them, hey, I can be an agent of change in the church. I, you know, sort of like a minister, but trying to change it into a place more acceptable to them. Maybe they consider themselves as sort of activists, actually helping these poor people adjust to modern society more. I'm convinced that a lot of these people are actually secular humanists and they think Christians are silly, gullible people who can be easily manipulated by Christianese and emotion. Another small point to make is about legalism and liberalism. In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, Jesus warns us to beware of wolves in sheep's clothing. And he says, we will know them by their fruits. He says, not everyone who declares the name of the Lord will be in the kingdom of God. 
Many will say they've done great things for God, but he will tell them he never knew them personally. You know, when Paul warns against false teachers, he's usually referring to legalists, to people wanting to demand circumcision or obedience to the Old Testament law. So you're thinking, that's not the same thing, right? We're talking about liberals. We're talking about liberalism. Well, I don't know. What used to be considered liberal is now pretty legalistic, isn't it? If you think about it, that is, if liberalism is the idea of letting people do things that may not be considered acceptable to others, and then legalism is making others do what you think they should do, which of these more represents the political and theological left today? I mean, political correctness is a set of rules that they are demanding we abide by, including things like celebrating gay marriage. You have to bake this cake for me. Or, or using transgender pronouns. You have to talk like this. They have a series of cultural norms that they know our beliefs won't allow. But they're trying to force us to accept it. That's legalism, isn't it? So it's not as if they're telling us to just leave them alone and not judge them. They are interested in forcing us to conform. So we see there are people who are honest apostates coming out and truthfully admitting they are not really Christians and separating themselves from the church. Then there are those who are pretending to be Christian leaders who are apostatizing in the sense that they are publicly endorsing views that are heresy, obviously trying to lead people astray on essential beliefs. There's a third group to consider. These guys are interesting because they choose to sneak their false beliefs in a little at a time. These guys are staying in the church and quietly appearing to be orthodox. They're sort of like secret agents. They see themselves as quiet activists trying to make the world a better place. So how can we tell who these people are? Well, I think it's really only seen clearly in their teaching. You've heard it said that the serpent in the garden questioning, did God really say that? is a good example of the devil, what the devil does, also a false teacher will do, and that's placing doubt in God's word. Did God really say? I know what they mean by that when I say this. Of course, that was the devil's intention, but if you think about it, that's actually where we start every time we consider what we believe, isn't it? Only in the sense that we begin by asking, did God really say this when considering anything? The, question, the real question is, where do we go from there? It's the second step that really tells what your intention is, right? One way you can tell a false prophet is the direction they go when they approach a question of doctrine or Christian practice. And remember, Paul commended the Bereans for not just listening to any teacher and accepting what they say, not just thinking about their opinion of it. No, they were instead constantly checking the scriptures to see if these things were true. Paul called them noble for that. Contrast that with what the serpent did. You will not surely die. 
did God really say that? You will not surely die. You could definitely say he lied because he contradicted God. He knew better. You could also say he just gave his opinion, right? That is, surely you won't die. God is doing this to keep you from knowing stuff, which is, of course, a lie and an opinion and a misrepresentation of God. What you usually see from a false prophet is not just outright misrepresentation of God's truth, though it is that, but also man-centered conclusions. They will question doctrine and then answer it with their opinion using man-centered conclusions. They may make human arguments to, to come to logical, you know, practical conclusions according to the popular worldview today. Even if he's a false teacher, he may make a lot of sense sometimes in the way he presents his ideas, but it will ultimately contradict what God's Word says. Think about this. Do you think a false teacher is likely to say, hey, I'm a false teacher and I have some heretical beliefs, so I'm going to try to convince you of them, so let's get started. No, of course, he's gonna. He's likely to, to appear very orthodox and will only share his true beliefs as he has gained credibility and then, actually, you know, because he only then does he believe he will succeed in convincing you. So he needs to be strategic about it. Do you think he will be mean? Will he be harsh and blunt about what he thinks? If he does, he won't be a very successful false teacher. He's likely to be nice to a fault. He'll probably be very, you know, warm and tender. He may even seem very loving in a sense. That's why the issue has to be about what is being taught or not taught. Um, he will not be interested in grounding in anyone in Scripture, for instance. He will not want to ground people in Scripture. He will be wanting to strategically place doubt where he can. And, like I said, man-centered conclusions. This is why we have to be Bereans and check every teacher about what they are teaching. We need to expect the enemy to be placing people in our midst to compromise and distract and try to confuse the body about what God wants. We need to each be in the Word and keep each other sharp and accountable. That way, we will easily recognize a wolf that is in the sheepfold. I'm Randy Nichols. I'm in pursuit of the right angle.